Hello and welcome to episode five of the Practice Drill podcast. Today I'm joined once again by my good mate Blaze McKee. How are you, mate? Very good, man. Bit different today over Zoom, but we're getting it done. Yeah, definitely, mate. But that's just the situation at the moment here in Sydney. So lots to talk about today following last night's State of Origin Game 2 and a famous, famous victory for the Blues. So today we're dissecting Game 2 with our own little analysis on both New South Wales and Queensland's performances. Then we roll into one of the more interesting storylines leading in to Game 2, which was Ronaldo Mulatalo being ruled uneligible to play State of Origin on the eve of the game. Then we continue our series of pretender or contender. Today we're talking about the Western Bulldogs in the AFL and our final discussion for today will be surrounding the cricket and who is really the best test cricket side in the world at their best. So Blaze, lots to talk about today. Let's get into it. Here we go. So, mate, we'll obviously start off with our Game 2 analysis. Mate, I'm just going to start off and say congratulations on the series win. A very, very, very um, dominant performance by New South Wales. What was your initial reaction following full-time last night? Yeah, I thought, you know, when I saw those posts come up on the practice drill, I thought Eli must really be struggling right now. But um, really, it was just a dominant performance from New South Wales. I think it's hard to... It's hard to pull out really one area because they were, uh, quite frankly, too strong across the board. I thought uh, James Tedesco really stood up and took control of the game, had 234 run metres and was real dominant. But, you know, again, it was real domination across the field. Their forwards and backs were really going forward with ease and played with a lot of freedom. Yeah, look, um, as you started off by saying... When I made those Instagram posts, it was just, you know, I just had to get it out there and forget about the game. Do it, do it as soon as the full-time siren went, you know, because um, as you said, it was uh, all-round performance from New South Wales once again. I mean, you know, um, I've been saying to you and a few of our other mates, you know, after they've been getting to me and saying, oh, Queensland, you know, you're not good anymore. Uh, and I've been thinking, mate, it's only been one game, but... You know, you backed it up. Two straight games of dominance from you guys. I think it's 76-6 to total score over the first two games. And that's just ridiculous. And I think, you know, one thing it starts to beg the question is, is this the most dominant side in Origin history? Because even though Queensland were able to win eight straight series and 11 over 12 years, you know, they never really put New South Wales away like that. It was always quite a tight series. New South Wales sometimes considered favourites. You know, they're really changing changing the way that rugby league is played. Um, and as you said, James Tedesco, man of the match last night, 234 run metres. He was ridiculous. But um, another person who was freakish last night was Latrell Mitchell. Um, what did you think of his performance? Yeah, he was incredible again. You know, probably unlucky in both games that there's been two really outstanding performances from Trevojevic and Tedesco that he hasn't been named man of the match but one thing for me is Latrell you know he's maybe not as impactful over the whole game but really in big moments he he stands up and he makes a real noticeable noticeable effort whenever he touches the ball or makes a tackle in defense you know the whole team or the whole the whole side really really sees it and it's a real you know visible thing yeah you're 100% right I mean I thought 
you know, one, one of his biggest plays, and he was kind of credited for the action, even though there were a few other Blues plays in there, but it was when they put uh, Dane Gagai into touch, about 10 metres out from the try line. Um, that just shows, you know, we all know how amazing he is in attack, whether it's for the Blues or South Sydney. Um, but, you know, his defence is just really, really underrated. And I think we saw there just how much of a big body he is and, and what he truly is capable of. Um, but like you said, when when you see one of your teammates delivering plays like that, it kind of boosts the morale in the game and, and you know, people want to want to follow in those footsteps. So I think moments like that was what kept Queensland to zero. Because, you know, we see, you know, Kyle Felt dropped a, a couple of balls in the try line. And I think the one late in the game where Toto was involved, you know, that's that sort of stuff. Like usually when you're up 26 to nothing, you just, you, you let that one through. But New South Wales had this unbelievable mindset that they just wanted to utterly destroy Queensland. And they definitely did that. But we'll move on to analyzing Queensland. I think the main thing that stands out for everyone watching it was just a real lack of composure and, um, you know, structure in attack. They kind of looks, you know, even when they're having repeat sets inside New South Wales's 20, they never really challenged too much. I know Kyle Felt made those couple of mistakes and, you know, that incredible try say from Tom Travojevic on Xavier Coates in the left-hand corner, but they just really... I don't believe they asked enough questions of New South Wales' defence. What what was your take on their attack? Yeah, they did really struggle to click. And, you know, when you look at New South Wales, a lot of their tries were a lot of good work. And then in the end, it was a pretty simple run-in. But, you know, for Queensland, they never really gave their outside backs those really clear opportunities. You know, you talk about those two kind of drop balls over the line. You can see there, they're still really a lot of congestion when they're, when they're going over the line compared to New South Wales who, yeah, like Addo Carr, for example, had a few quite easy run-ins. So that probably shows they were a bit, bit muddled. And yeah, like you said, some of their shape just wasn't really clicking. And as a result, New South Wales just always seemed to have an answer. Yeah, they, uh, they just didn't capitalise on good field position. You know, I, I don't think in game one, they really try. they didn't really utilize the fact that they had Kyle Felt on um, or Xavier Coates on Brian Totter. And in this game, they, they had chances and they just, they, they didn't capitalize. And that's as a Queensland fan, that's really frustrating to see because that's not like us. Usually we, we make New South Wales pay for, for putting us in that field position. Um, And we just didn't, but I think the most frustrating thing coming out of the game as a Queensland supporter is the fact that I don't think we made New South Wales work enough for their tries. Obviously we spoke about how great New South Wales were in defense. And maybe you can say, well, that's them working for their points because they're stopping Queensland from scoring and, and that's allowing them to hold their lead. But, you know, we go back, especially in the first half, the first half was dreadful um, past the 15 minute mark for Queensland. You had, Latrell Mitchell's one-on-one strip with Kyle Felt, that's not good enough. I don't know how on a kick return, you're not trying to angle your body a bit to try and avoid a situation like that. I don't know 
You know, Latrell Mitchell is sneaky like that. He's always looking to kind of one-up you. And if you go in, you know, ball first into him and he makes, you know, good initial contact, which is what he did, you're in trouble. Um, so I thought that was really poor from Kyle Felt. Then, um, you know, Valentine Holmes throwing that ball that Latrell Mitchell intercepted. You know, again, you know, that's not really New South Wales working for points. And then Kafusi gave a repeat set on fourth tackle on New South Wales' 30-metre line. The next tackle, they spread it. And then Travojevic gives it to, I think it was Murray to Travojevic and then to Ado Carr. And Ado Carr made that break and back to Travojevic on the inside. You know, that's three tries right there in the first half. And it was basically game over because I think it only happened maybe four times in the last 10 years that a side had come back from being down 12-plus points. So you, you knew it was going to be a, a serious uphill battle um, in the second half for Queensland, and they just really weren't up to it. And Yeah, it was, as I said, just really, really disappointing to see them, uh, you know, cough the ball up like that to New South Wales. Yeah, I think as we've spoken about, the New South Wales team is so, so talented and they've got so many weapons there. When you give them, give them opportunities like that, they're going to take them more times than not. And particularly, I thought that, uh, as you said, the one-on-one strip with Latrell Mitchell and Kyle felt, you know, it seemed a bit like a nothing. It was a bit of a nothing moment. And then all of a sudden, New South Wales are right on the attack and right on top. And it probably also was a bit of a sign for the game where New South Wales were just a bit dominant, dominant physically. And then it allowed them to really take over on the scoreboard. Yeah, and I think what else is crazy is those three moments in the first half you know, I think if New South, if Queensland had done that to New South Wales, I don't think they would have impacted the scoreboard immediately. But that's how good New South Wales are, is that they get a one-on-one strip, they're in good field position, that set they score. They get the intercept, you know, and you run 90 metres and you score. You give a repeat set, next tackle, they score. They can just flick a switch like that, and that's really scary. And, but for New South Wales fans, that's, that's incredible to see, you know, such a good turnaround um, from last year's disappointing series loss to now winning the series in two games. Um, And they've got a game up their sleeve, whether that'll be played in Sydney or elsewhere still to be determined um, considering the COVID situation, but um, really impressive. But I do have to say, I think once again, the build-up to origin for Queensland wasn't ideal. Um, Obviously with Reese Walsh, getting injured on Saturday was appalling. Oh, I, got, I got the phone call from a mate while I was at work on Saturday night and my heart kind of sunk, you know. It was just really disappointing. Everything that could go wrong for Queensland went wrong. Obviously, in game one, we had those injury clouds around Munster, Grant, Welch left the game, you know, 10, 15 minutes into game one and then losing Walsh and, you know, a lot of people saying, well, he's only a debutant. He's not going to make that much of an impact. But, you know, I was, I was fairly confident that he would do something, as we spoke about, in our Origin 2 special uh, that we actually released on Saturday morning, um, that I just thought he would bring that much-needed X factor to that fullback spot. And even last night, I don't think Valentine Holmes has that in him. Um, but that led into Ronaldo Mulatalo being brought into the side and New South Wales appealing against him, um, making his origin debut over eligibility questions. What did you make of that whole situation? 
it was pretty crazy. You know, when you first see the article there, you know, I always think back to previous origins during the build up. There's always a lot of headlines and whatever, and a lot of them are just non stories. So to be honest, when I first read it, I thought, oh, this is just a bit of bit of media and a bit of hype. But then you actually read into it and you think, wow, this is a really big stuff up. And I, I don't know who made the first stuff up and how it actually happened. But yeah, it was pretty crazy to think at a professional level, something like that can actually happen. Yeah, my take on it is I, I don't understand why people are saying that Queensland made the mistake. I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect world, and I think, you know, Ronaldo Molotalo is a great winger, but in a perfect world, he's probably not playing in this Origin series. So, you know, he's not, he's just kind of on the fringe of Queensland's radar. So when you have Xavier Coates not really playing at his best, Ponger and Walsh injured, that's when he gets brought into the side. Um, and, you know, he he's always shown his allegiance to Queensland. And I think where they got him was the fact that um, he hadn't played rugby league in Australia till he was 14, which is a year over the requirement, which is 13 or younger. Um, but the fact that people have spun it to be Queensland's fault, I'm really puzzled by because when you sign a contract by, by the NRL, you state, you know, whether you want to play for Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, New Zealand, Samoa, Tonga, doesn't matter. England, it doesn't matter. It's just wherever, wherever your allegiance lies within the boundaries of the rules. And I think it's a stuff up from the NRL, not Queensland Rugby League, because they're the ones that have to approve the contract, pay the play, that sort of money. I don't know how you oversee that. I think as soon what they should be doing, and maybe they are, but they've obviously stuffed up here in this case, is when the rookies come into a club and they've got to sign a contract, a person from the NRL should come out to those clubs and do the contracts with the players, not the club doing the contract with the players. Because they're gonna the club's gonna want to do whatever the player wants, you know, in order to keep them happy and wanting to play for whatever club they play for. They need to look at the contract, ask the right questions, find out whether they're whether that player is eligible for origin or not, not leave it for the night before origin and and the guy misses out on his on his longtime dream of pulling on that maroon uh, jersey you know I, I thought it was really really cruel because that's that's a stuff up from the NRL not him not not the QRL so that at least that's my take obviously I think when you when you look and see that he did play rugby league at the age of 14 and that is a year over I understand that's when you're not eligible. And I agree, you've got to stick within those rules. That's fine. But to figure that out the night before the game he's meant to play is really, really poor. Yeah, definitely. I think particularly since he's played Origin 18s and 20s. So really, this should have been figured out a while ago. So they're saying he was eligible to play those games, but wasn't to play this one. When really, he should have obviously been ruled out of those games as well. But the other thing I found really strange is... The international 
eligibility rules for rugby league state that you can play for the nation, which is your principal place of residence. So Ronaldo could actually play for Australia, but somehow he's not eligible to play for a state within Australia. Seems seems a bit crazy to me. And yeah. the rule does seem a little bit strange to me, but I guess that's the rules, the rule. And yeah, big stuff up on the part of the NRL there. Yeah, but I can also counter that is that it's called state of origin. So it's where you're from, you know, so you may be and he may be an Australian citizen or reside reside in Australia. But he, you know, you can you can you can definitely have uh, a genuine argument by saying, but he wasn't born in Queensland, so he can't play. But um, I think, you know, you grow up in your teens there. I would say you're from Queensland, but. You know, that, that's the thing is there's just a lot of grey area surrounding it. Um, and I, I really feel for him and obviously his family because he would have called his family once Reese Walsh got injured saying, you know, I'm in the team. And um, I, I think they live in Queensland anyway, so they would have been able to, to go to Suncorp and watch him play. And, you know, 11 o'clock on Sunday, you know, releases an, an Instagram post saying that, you know, he's had to withdraw and, you know, Xavier Coates comes in and takes his uh, spot out there on that left wing so you know really feel for him and and it's just it's just a difficult situation but anyway we'll move on to a little bit of a lighter topic of our continued series pretender or contender today we're talking about the western bulldogs in the afl currently sitting second spot on the ladder behind the melbourne demons what a season the bulldogs are having yeah, pretty crazy. They had a really dominant win yesterday over West Coast. And, you know, that's pretty impressive. Going over to Perth is a really tough place to play. Obviously, a long travel and Optus Stadium there. It's also behind closed doors, so a bit of a strange atmosphere. But, yeah, really dominant win over a fellow top eight team and puts them in really good stead for, for the season to come. Yeah, exactly right. You know, they've beaten the Eagles twice now, but to beat the West Coast Eagles in Perth is something that a lot of teams struggle with. And if you're able, if you're able to, um, you know, overcome that hurdle and actually win the game, I, I believe that makes them contenders because that's a really, really difficult feat. And, um, and to beat them by 55 points is ridiculous. Like I would have been, ha- I would have still considered them contenders if they beat West Coast by three points. You know, but to beat them by 55 is ridiculous. They are a serious premiership threat this year. Yeah, for me, they're definitely contenders as well, you know. But one one area we've spoken about is going to be a big issue for them maybe going forward is their kicking accuracy. You know, they had 20 behinds yesterday. They still won by 55 points, but they had 20 behinds and they've had an average of 13 behinds per game. So... That could definitely be a big factor come later in the season, you know, when the scores become lower and the games tighten up. If you're kicking a lot of behinds, you know, you could find yourself on the wrong side of the scoreline at the end of the game. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to capitalise um, on situations inside 50. Um, they have one of the best midfields in the league. So it doesn't surprise me that they're above um, the competition average inside 50s and getting that clearance to to get the ball into an, an attacking position. Um, but like you said, having an average of 13 behinds per game isn't good enough. And I'm sure it's an area that Luke Beveridge, their coach, would be saying, you know, we've we got to work on this area because when it comes to finals, 
who, who's to say that they will actually get those clearances and get and continue to dominate in inside 50s? Because um, when you come up against teams such as, you know, Richmond, who I know are struggling and who, who had a terrible loss on Friday, but um, they're, they're a finals team. Like, that's when they play their best, their best footy. Um, so when the Bulldogs come against sides like that and the Demons, Geelong, who have that experience, um, you've got to make the most of those opportunities and you've got to continue to kick goals. They do, however, average 13 goals a game. Um, but imagine if they weren't kicking that many behinds. Like, you can settle for, you know, anywhere between about 9 to 10 behinds. I think, on average, that would be okay. But 13 is way too much. But, you know, I think another thing that makes them a contender, um, like we spoke about, um, is their midfield and and their great ball users in there. They've got Bontempelli, um, Josh Dunkley, who is currently injured, Jack McRae, who is averaging 34.9 disposals per game. Um, how, how do you think you stop a midfield like that? I think it's pretty difficult. As you say, you know, they've got a lot of guys in there that can get the ball. For me, you've got to look at the top, you know, Jack and Gray averaging close to 35 disposal a game. I think teams will really be targeting him and saying, if we can shut him out of the game, we'll hopefully have a good opportunity. But, you know, as they said, guys like Pelly can then come in and, and get you 30 disposals and take the game away from you. But, yeah, I think for opponents, you'd definitely be looking at Jack McRae as the big target there and seeing if you can shut him down. Can you shut the Bulldogs down? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to actually, because, you know, we've played many years of AFL. Um, it's really hard to shut down a side that has, you know, three, four great midfielders because you usually have one person that you target and you'll get someone to tag that person. But then that leaves another two players who can do pretty much the exact same job, maybe average, you know, five less disposals per game, but then they can lift up to that standard. So you can, you can tag McRae all you want, make sure he doesn't get that 35 disposals and he may get, you know, 25, you know, any, anywhere around that number. But then someone like Bontempelli, who may average, you know, high 20s, early 30s, he can then get up to that 35 disposal mark. So, you know, it's kind of like that next person up mentality. They're still all great and they, you know, they have their days where one person will have more disposals than McRae when he is playing. But I just think it's going to be really hard to stop and they've got some great targets up forward and, you know, they're still they're still building because they, they do have a young side that, you know, only won a premiership, what, five years ago. So they're, they're serious contenders. But we'll move on to our final topic of the day, who really is the best test cricket side in the world at their best? So obviously this topic's been brought up because of the recent World Test Championship final between New Zealand and India in Southampton, England. And obviously New Zealand came up trumps there on day six. We wrote a, a couple of articles on it. What, what did you make of that game? I think it was pretty interesting, you know, Obviously, it was heavily rain-affected, but they had that extra day, and New Zealand really played played really well. They were probably a bit lucky on the last day. There was a bit of a collapse, uncharacteristic collapse from India that allowed them allowed them to get the win. But in the end, they were they were definitely the best side across the six days and deserved to get the win. Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, 
um, to bowl the way they did at the start of that of that day six was unbelievable. I mean, you know, India have one of the best batting lineups in the world, if not the best. And New Zealand, that they've been building for quite a few years, so to finally you know get over that hurdle. Obviously, they've lost um, two ICC um, World Cup, which is a one-day format. Um, they've lost two finals, one against Australia and one against England. And to finally, you know, third time's the charm, get over the hump and, and win the Test Championship, which I think for a lot of people, you know, you would have never thought New Zealand would ever be crowned the best Test team over three years. I, I think it's incredible. Yeah, um, definitely. I think, you know, they're probably that that overachiever. When you look at their team, they're, they're not got the star-studded names of some of the other countries, but they're just consistent. They do what they do really well, you know, when they're, I guess like every team, when they're probably a bit out of their conditions, they struggle. But when they're in their conditions, man, they they really take advantage and they're tough to beat. 100%. But it leads us to the question, obviously, you know, the way that Test Cricket works over a three-year period is, you know, some series of three games, some are five, some are four. We start to question, you know, does this accurately determine who the best Test Cricket team is? And you know, from debates we've had during the week and we thought we'd bring it up in the podcast is, you know, we're thinking differently to the result. You know, we give full credit to New Zealand for winning the World Test Championship. But I personally, I think they're a great side and they, they should be, uh, you should be scared when you come up against them. But I still don't think they are the best test team in the world. And I do think Australia is the best test team in the world when playing at their best. Um, what's your take on that? Do you think another team's better than Australia when playing at their best? For me, for me, it's still the Indians. I think they've still got the best depth and best spread across their, across their team. I think this argument is one that you can have for days and days because cricket's one of those sports where, you know, home advantage and those sort of factors come into it so much. But when you're just looking purely, purely across sides on paper, I think India, India are probably the best side. Well, I, my counter to that is that, you know, I think Australia have great bowlers for most climates. I know they struggle a little bit against India in India and those subcontinent teams, so Sri Lanka as well and Pakistan. But I just think when it comes to getting a side out, Australia can do it better than anyone else. You know, they have the ability of bowling a team out for, you know, double digit number in test cricket, which is which is ridiculous for those who may not follow cricket uh, deeply. But when you've got, you know, they've got the number one batsman in the world and the number one bowler in the world, Steve Smith and Pat Cummins. And they've also got, you know, Josh Hazelwood, who's also in the top five best bowlers in the world. He sits currently at number four. I just think they have a lot of strike power and they've got, you know, young players coming through such as Cameron Green as an all-rounder. When you have a you know a five head bowling attack that are all quick can swing the ball. They got Nathan Lyon, who's arguably you know the best off spin bowler in the world. I ju- I just think they've got all the tricks in the book to be able to get sides out when they're completely clicking. And I think India lack that bowling wise, especially. I know Ravi Ashwin, who's currently ranked number two in Test bowlers, has the ability to take plenty of wickets. And, and, and usually does get a bag for himself. But, you know, I, I still find 
that their pace attack isn't good enough. And I think we definitely saw that in the World Test Championship final against New Zealand. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, the big knock on India for years has probably been their bowling attack. And I think their pace bowlers have definitely improved a lot. You know, Boomer's number 11 in the world, Ishan Sharma 17 and Mohammed Shami 18. So what I see there is a real consistent bowling attack. And, you know, I think they did struggle definitely in the Test Championship. But, you know, I think there were some other factors that may have come into that, you know, with their preparedness for the match. They'd come off, you know, basically just T20 cricket, bowling four overs, whereas the Kiwis had had that two-match warm-up. But for me, it's just their consistency across the board. You know, we talk about Australia's bowling attack being really good, and I do agree with that. But when I look at their batting, I don't know if two... Two batsmen is enough to enough to beat India. Whereas you look at India's batting lineup, you've got Rohit Sharma opening six best in the world, Pajara at three, thirteen in the world, Kohli at four, Rahane Pant, and then Jadeja and Ashwin have both got test centuries. So I think they bat so deep. And when I look at Australia, I just don't think their batting depth is is quite there. Yeah, I think I think you bring up a good point. I do think Australia's batting depth is something that you can that you can question because We've seen time and time again that if Steve Smith doesn't score a huge amount of runs, they do struggle. But I think when Australia are at their best, they lose wickets very slowly. And that what what I mean by that is, you know, David Warner, who's open for them for, man, it would be about a decade now. He'll hang around and score close to 100. And he'll score that quickly. So what Australia can do, which I think is better than a lot of sides and, and I think better than India's, is they score quicker. And I think that really suits them in, in being able to get a result out of test matches. And when you've got Labashane, who's currently ranked number three, coming in at number three for Australia, um, you know, he can score anywhere between 100 to 150 when he's on and then Smith at four. And I think we all know what Steve Smith is capable of. So, that's where I think Australia is better. And for India, their their batting comes later in the innings, which you know does credit their depth. But it then leads to questions about their openers and being a, and being able to put their side on the front foot early, which is what Australia often do. Is they try to get on top of teams as soon as the first ball is bowled. Um, sometimes that works against them, but a majority of the time, I think it works for them. They, you know, they're able to put close to a hundred on a side in the opening session of a test match and, and go on to score, you know, after 350 in a day's play. So um, personally, I think Australia definitely are the best side because of that ability to score runs early and have three players uh, in their batting lineup in the top 10 in the world. And then bowling wise, they've got three bowlers out of their, you know, at the moment, four, five man bowling attack in the top 10. So they just seem to, really have the stats to back it up in the two key uh, categories. Yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting debate. And, you know, as our, as our friends know, we can talk cricket all day, even <laughs> even to their much to their annoyance. Yes. And yeah. I think it's going to be a really interesting year of cricket coming up with, with obviously the Ashes coming up and Australia and England, as you say, probably two countries that on paper are really, really look good, but probably haven't performed to their to their own high standards the last few years. So that's going to be a really interesting series. It definitely will be. So I know we're both absolutely pumped to 
see that series starting in December, I believe. But anyway, that will do us for this episode, episode number five of the Practice Drill podcast. If you'd like to see some of our other work, go and follow us on both Instagram and Twitter at T underscore Practice Drill. In our bios on both those platforms, you will find the link to our website where we post four articles a week from Monday through to Thursday and all things NRL, AFL, Rugby Union, Cricket and NBA Basketball. So, Blaze, once again, I think it was a great podcast and uh, look forward to chatting again next week.